Why are critics and readers so drawn to Jenny Ophel's fiction? Leslie Jameson will join us to talk about Ophel's new novel, Weather, and what makes her work so distinctive. What does it take to survive as a first-time author? Courtney Maum will join us to talk about Before and After the Book Deal, a writer's guide to finishing, publishing, promoting, and surviving your first book. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. It's Friday, February 7th, and this is the Book Review Podcast for The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Leslie Jameson is here in the studio. Her most recent book is Make It Scream, Make It Burn, Essays, which was reviewed in the book review last fall. But she's here now to talk about another book she reviewed this week on our cover, Jenny Ophel's Weather. Leslie, thanks for being here. It's so wonderful to be here. So you – let's – First, talk about Jenny Ophel, who she is. Carl Sagal, a staff critic for The Times, wrote a profile of Jenny Ophel in this week's issue of The New York Times Magazine. But give us a sense of who this writer is. When I think about Jenny Ophel's work and why it matters and why I think it's really created this sense of excitement around so many readers, I think part of it, you know, she writes about motherhood and marriage and things that can get lumped under that general umbrella term domesticity, but she brings them to life in these incredibly razor-sharp ways. And there shouldn't even be a but conjunction in that sentence, right? Like, why are those states of being not razor-sharp somehow? But but sometimes they can get seen as soft or sentimental, and she brings both a very different form and a very different tone, I think, to how she writes about them and how she does justice to their emotional extremity. Now I'm thinking that we have to make a challenge to ourselves not to use the word but for the rest of this podcast, but I think, <laughs> there we go, that we're going to fail. So we'll just, we'll, we'll put that aside. This book, Weather, is her third novel. Her first was Last Things, and then it took her 15 years to write her next book, Department of Speculation, which came out in 2014 and was one of our 10 best books of the year. And I feel like that book really brought her to a wider attention, perhaps not bestseller list attention, but it was hugely critically acclaimed and beloved by readers. So let's just start talk a little bit about that book and why it struck such a chord. And I think it's no accident when you said it was like 15 years until the next book, which is actually sort of part of the plot of Department of Speculation, too. It's like there's a writer who's taking a long time to put out her second novel. Part of, I, I think, you know, my understanding from interviews she's done of the story of that book is that it started as a much more conventionally structured novel, and it sort of took her a long time to whittle it down to its really searing form, which is a very fragmented form where you feel like you're getting these absolutely essential bursts of experience. Mm-hmm. I think her agent described it once as more like an x-ray than a body, which I thought was such an amazing evocation of how it works. And so part of why it caught hold, I think, is that it wasn't it wasn't just very smart about feeling and it had this like strong heart and it's about a infidelity and a marriage sort of repairing itself, but it also, it seemed to find a new language for feeling and a new structure for feeling. Yeah, I want to go back to that, the fragments and the structure. For people who have not read Jenny Ophel, we should say this, her books are really short. They're really, really short, but they are packed, and yet they don't feel dense. 
And part of that is due to structure. And you use the word fragments. People will use the word fragments or fragmentary or sort of cones. Let's talk about like how she structures these books because it is – especially when Department of Speculation came out in 2014, it felt very different from what was being written. And it felt very different from the way in which a domestic novel was being written. You know, it makes me think a little bit about the way that like Virginia Woolf would describe moments of being, you know, that somehow we have these moments where it feels like something about experience is intensified or crystallized. And I think Jenny Ophel has a a real knack for, like, putting her finger on the pulse of those moments. So maybe it's just an ordinary moment, like in this latest novel, where she comes home from— her narrator comes home from feeling this intense panic about climate change and her son's playing Minecraft and needs her to get like putty off of his fingers. Like it's not in a dramatic sense, like it's there's not a huge plot point happening in that moment, but she manages to find these ways that seemingly insignificant moments if you if you describe them so precisely and locate some kind of feeling that's happening in them, like quivering inside them, she does justice to it. And the way that her books are structured, I don't think there are I guess in this book, whether there are parts, I can't remember if in Department of Speculation she even divided into chapters, but it's these single paragraphs or a few paragraphs spaced apart on the page. So not only is it a small book, but it actually, I mean, you could theoretically sit down and read it in a couple of hours. I did. You did. Yeah, I did. So not just in theory, in practice, (laughs) you could sit down and, and read it very quickly. And one of the things that I think people then mistakenly assume is that, oh, you know, it's sort of hastily written. You get the sense, though, once you are reading it, that not at all. This feels something that is very much labored over, almost like poetry in terms of the precision of the ways in which the things that she's putting into those little sections, as you pointed out, it's often about the contrast in a given moment between something very granular and domestic and personal, and then some larger thought that's going on or something happening in the greater world. Do you think that was what was so striking about Department of Speculation, the fact that she was doing that, that she was taking something like a domestic novel that was, you know, just, as you said, kind of a story of a Brooklyn mother and infidelity and work-life balance and these things that so many books are about, but infusing in it these larger issues. I think that's a really good point that so often what makes these like short bursts glow or feel incandescent or feel charged is that they're very granular, but they're also holding some kind of emotional intensity. And I think when you're writing about something like infidelity, where there's both the danger of somehow telling a story that people feel like they've heard before or a story that feels intrinsically melodramatic, it can really bring out the humanity of the story to pay attention to the granularity of like, you know, one scene that's rising to mind from that novel is like the narrator after a a conflict with her husband going to stay at a a hotel overnight and like praying on the carpet of the hotel floor. But it's like it's like that hotel carpeting Mm -hmm. that holds so much feeling rather than just like the larger abstraction of, of infidelity per se or something. And so I think it is that scale shifting that can happen in the space of a paragraph can then happen across the course of the whole book that's also really operative in this latest book where the scales are even bigger because, among other things, it's a book about climate change, which is like one of the biggest scales. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, let's talk about weather. And let's start with what it's about, even though, you know, as we, I think people are probably sensing when you talk about Jenny Oval's work, it really isn't about plot. Yeah. 
But what is Weather about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the the narrator of Weather is a mother who years ago dropped out of a PhD program and is working as a university librarian. And she takes a job working for her former mentor who does a podcast about climate change where she's answering all the letters that are coming in in response to this podcast. So there are a few different, you know, there's the kind of plot of her. I want Jenny Ovul's narrator to answer my letters to this podcast. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love answering your letters. I would be... (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say answer my letters. I was like, I have a few letters, but I'm like, let's write Jenny Opal. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you have this narrator as a mother, you have her as a wife, you have her as a, a worker and maybe a worker who feels a bit lost in the world. There's also, for me, one of the most compelling plot lines in the book is about the narrator's relationship with her brother, who's a recovering addict. He gets married and then has a a baby. And her role in his life and her sort of desperate hope that he can kind of put his life together was a really moving strand among strands for me as well. Presumably, that's very deliberate, bringing new life into a world that is in crisis and feels like it's Ending. And I think that's one of the abiding emotional tensions in the book is like the the world is always beginning and ending at once. And maybe there's something about that truism that has felt universal through time, but it has a particular acuity now where the world is is its ending is hastened in a particular mm-hmm. way by these factors that are at work. But that dynamic of like, yes, the world is ending, but also you wake up in the morning and you're touching base with your brother over text to make sure he and the baby are doing okay, that both of those are real and both of those are happening. I think we're seeing a wave of climate fiction and it's taking all of these different forms, probably most noticeably post-apocalyptic and dystopian, although there are also books like Richard Powers's The Overstory, sometimes metaphorical, sometimes very reality-based. This feels different, though. I mean, how does this differ from other fiction looking at climate and climate change? For starters, you don't have the kind of like emotional buffer of the post-apocalyptic landscape. That emotional buffer might sound like a strange way to describe a post-apocalyptic landscape, but it's like If the apocalypse is happening in, like, a Brooklyn public school or, like, that's the stage set for the book, it feels more disquieting in certain ways because it's closer to home. It's not like a Cormac McCarthy novel where a father and son are, like, you know, traveling the charred landscape. Like, it's more immediate in that way. And I think one of the challenges of writing about climate change is how to take this thing that is essentially on a larger scale than our minds can hold and how to make it a narrative we can hold. There's this moment early on in in Weather where the narrator is thinking about her son Eli's elementary school and she says the problem with the school is that it's not built on a human scale. It feels too large for these little children who are going into it. And I think in a way that lays out one of the aesthetic challenges of the book, right, is like climate change isn't quite on a human scale, but narrative is on a human scale. So how do you translate? How does she do it? Part of it has to do with what we were talking about a little bit earlier, these questions of sort of scale shifting and simultaneity, where Mm -hmm. you have these big questions of like the end of the world coming up, either through the letters that are coming into this podcast or, you know, this narrator is doing what I think we all do, obsessive Googling about lots of things where she's sort of trying to see, like, you know, how hot is it going to be in New York City and, you know, when her son is 60 years old or something like that and getting so freaked out by these numbers. So you sort of have those larger questions that are always coming up against 
the interpersonal dramas of the book. So either it's like the abstraction of like how hot is the world going to get comes up against the body of her actual son who she's imagining at age 60 or thinking about like the horsemen of the apocalypse coming in comes up against, you know, coming home and giving the dog his slobber frog toy, you know, so it becomes on a human scale because we see a particular human with a particular life, a particular brother who's giving, bringing new life into the world, that all of those abstract questions are hitting all of those granular particulars. Would you say the central question is really, you know, how do you tend to your own garden while the world is burning? There are definitely feel like some references to Voltaire and Candide here. And, and, but I think ultimately it's like, how do you look outward from your own garden? Maybe how do you tend your garden and not stay completely trapped in your own garden while the world is burning? And, and how do you love a burning world? How can you have love for the things of this world and the relationships of this world and try to hold on to the reality that it's in this deep peril? How did this new book, Weather, compare for you with her, with her second book, Department of Speculation? Like so many people, I had a really kind of passionate, visceral relationship with Department of Speculation. And I think weather didn't make me feel as intensely as Department of Speculation did, but I was utterly compelled by it. And like I said, I read it in a single sitting, um, felt like really awed by it on so many levels. And I think in a way, the the fact that it didn't have quite the same visceral emotional impact was a kind of testimony to the ambition of what it was trying to do to, you know, cl- climate change in a way is harder to feel about than infidelity because it's not essentially an interpersonal drama. Mm-hmm. So it made sense to me on a certain on a certain level that this novel was hitting almost a different sense of nerve endings and maybe a slightly less super sensitized sense of nerve endings than that last one. But there were also a lot of continuities between the two books for me in terms of this very close, subtle attention to the ways that people are, you know, inhabiting many identity roles at once, feeling intense amounts of, like, conflict and ambivalence at once. Also, this this dynamic, I think Jenny Ophel is so good at describing where you you can be really deep inside your own pain and then have some moment where something cracks open and you become suddenly aware of the pain of another person, which is such a kind of core human reality, I think, to try to evoke. And she, she finds really great ways of evoking it. I wonder about readers coming to Jenny Ophel's work with this novel for the first time, maybe not having read Department of Speculation even though there were only six years between the two novels, in that period, I feel like there were many Jenny Ophel-esque books and kind of imitations of her style that it might strike people as less distinctive and extraordinary coming to this book. And one of the things I find about her style that feels very contemporary to me is that it's almost the perfect style for a distracted world because of the way it is fragmentary, that it does require attention, obviously, and the more attention you pay, the more you notice what she's doing. But it is extremely easily digestible. You know, there are interesting ways that people have spoken and written about the fragmentary form in relation to, like, contemporary distraction or even in relation to motherhood or this idea of, like, what can be written in bursts or when you only have small fragments of time. But I think I often have a slightly different response to it, which is that as you were saying earlier, I don't think of this as, say, prose that could be written during nap time or, like, written during, like, small gaps of experience. Like, it feels it feels like part of this, like, pretty cohesive and intricate vision. And, and maybe the correlative to that in a reading experience is I find that when I read it, I actually do want to have a really immersive experience with it, even though theoretically— 
it would be easier to read these little units like on a subway stop and then like as I hit the office and have two minutes before I have to get started. But it actually it, – it, it makes me want to create the kind of reading experience that I think actually is harder to create these days. I saw an image. I think it's in the Times Magazine profile of Jenny Ophel, but I saw this online of – her bulletin board, like one of her mm. sort of working visuals that I, that I guess is in, must be in her home office. And it's this kind of incredible board with these little teeny strips of paper of type that she's printed out. And we really get a sense of her process and, and the fact that it is very deliberate. It's not, as you say, hastily typed out between, right. you know, breastfeedings or anything like that. That sounds like a remarkable image, and I'm always obsessed with seeing – it feels like you're looking inside somebody's brain or talk about x-rays, like you're getting to see the whole internal landscape when you see their process board. Do you have a process board? I have, like, no space for – I have no idea where I would even put a process board, but <laughs> – You're making me feel better. <laughs> my, to- my toddler <laughs> would probably wreck a process board as soon as it came into being. But I was thinking about one thing that you said about how – In the years between Department of Speculation and this novel, maybe there have been a lot of – or more novels that are sort of working in this mode and the mode that she pioneered that's a little bit more fragmentary. I'm not thinking of particular examples here, but I I think – one thing that I've found to be true about the fragmentary form is that it's it can be deceptive. Like you feel like, oh, I could do that. Right. But it's actually so hard to get it right. And so in a way, it's pretty it's a pretty hard form to imitate because you have to figure out and trust and have a, a lot of confidence, I think, that precisely these strokes are gonna do the work you need them to do. And it's when like they poetry. don't, yeah, it just feels sort of thin mm-hmm. or anemic rather than somehow simultaneously like lean and powerful. You were not here to talk about your last essay collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. You were here for the empathy exam, so listeners can go back and find that episode. What are you working on now? Are you working on another essay collection? I have just started thinking about and working on a book of nonfiction that is actually operating right after I've said these things about the fragmentary mode being a hard mode to get right that is operating in a bit of a fragmentary mode and it's thinking about some of the questions in this book about simultaneity and so it's thinking about motherhood and the first two years of my daughter's life and motherhood and art and motherhood and various kinds of life rupture and sort of how to hold joy and pain at once, which is a way of thinking about the beginning and the ending of the world existing in a single moment. But, you know, in a way, it's it feels in conversation with books like Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights and Renata Adler's Speedboat, but also in certain ways with Jenny O'Foll and Maggie Nelson and some of these contemporary writers who are working with with whittling, I think, in really compelling ways. Well, I won't torture you by asking any more detailed (laughs) questions about what you're working on because I know how terrible that can be, but you will hopefully be back here as a guest when that book comes out. That would be lovely. It's great to be here today and to see you again, Pamela, as always. Such a pleasure to have you. Leslie Jameson is the author of four books, Make It Scream, Make It Burn, Essays, The Empathy Exam, also essays, The Gin Closet, a novel, and The Recovering, a memoir. This week in the book review, she reviews on our cover, Weather, a novel by Jenny Ophel.
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hey, Alexander. Hey, Pamela. What's new? So we have some good bookstore news and some bad bookstore news. What would you like to start with? <laughs> Let's start with the bad so we okay. can end with the good. And they're connected. So as we've talked about on the podcast before, there has been this recent and encouraging development in the retail book market where independents have been recovering largely and their numbers are growing, but it's still a really tough market for independent bookstores in Manhattan. Rents are just so high and a lot of stores have been under pressure. And as people might have heard, a beloved independent store called Book Culture, which is on the Upper West Side, went out of business this year. City Marshals actually took control of it. They hadn't paid their rent in a while. Wow. What does and that mean? It's like they show up at the door and... I guess so. Yeah. It sounds, um, it sounds violent. It's dramatic. No, it wasn't like an early morning raid, like an <laughs> FBI style one. But Give us your books. Yeah. But they it, apparently they owed more than $100,000 in rent. They put out calls for donations and things, but it, it wasn't enough. So that closed, and of course, everyone was devastated. It's terrible when you lose your neighborhood independent. And then there was some exciting news related to that. So this week, The Strand announced that they are going to be opening a satellite store in the former space occupied by Book Culture. And The Strand is a legendary independent store. They're known for just their vast selection. They have new books and used books. And you can get lost in their store for hours and hours just going through the racks and seeing what they have. So the announcement came in, of course, people were delighted that, you know, this wasn't going to be turned into another nameless retail store, but rather a bookstore that has, I mean, a ton of character and is famous for its sales staff. They're extremely knowledgeable. You have to take a pretty tough test to get to work there. Have you ever taken that test? No, have you? No, but I feel like we should. I mean, I'd be curious. I don't imagine that I would pass. But So this was a statement that went out from the Strand owner, Nancy Bass Wyden, and she said, we aim to continue the legacy of my father and his father before him by bringing the joy of books to everyone. So, okay, a few questions. Yes. The Strand on 11th Street in Manhattan I think it's like 11,000 square feet of books is part of their timeline. Yes, it's vast. How many square feet is this space? Yeah, this is certainly not going to be as expansive as their original location. I think, according to news reports, this space is 4,000 square feet, much smaller than, than their central store. But they are going to be hosting a lot of events, as they do downtown. And I think it's just nice for the literary community on the Upper West Side to have another outlet. As a former Upper West Sider, I have many, many laments and questions about that neighborhood, including like, why can't it sustain a great bagel store? And you That know, is shocking. It is shocking. And this bookstore space, you know, used to be, I think before it was book culture, it was Endicott Books. There have just been a number of bookstores that have closed on the Upper West Side. It feels like it makes sense. It seems like something deserves to survive there. I mean, there are still a few stores on the Upper West Side bookstores, but let's hope the Strand succeeds. Yes. I mean, I think it has such a strong reputation. I could see people commuting to this store from other other neighborhoods. I certainly plan to go check it out when it opens. All right. There's another big bookstore story this week. Yes. This week, Barnes & Noble generated some news and attention and not necessarily in a positive way. 
the store announced that they had this project called Diverse Editions that they were using to raise awareness and discussion about diversity during Black History Month. But the project was seen as somewhat ill-conceived by a lot of readers who voiced their concerns on social media. The basic premise was that they were partnering with Penguin Random House and used artificial intelligence to look through 100 classic books. And if there wasn't an explicit reference to the character's race, they selected those books and they created covers for those books that featured diverse characters. You know, this was, I think, conceived as an, an effort to sort of promote diversity in literature. But the biggest and loudest critique was, well, why not then just promote books by authors of color that feature characters of color instead of trying to sort of retrofit the canon? So that project was very quickly abandoned. It was supposed to start on Wednesday, February 5th with an event at Barnes & Noble, but Barnes & Noble decided to cancel it. All right. A side note here, perhaps, but I also want to say I'm very leery of using artificial intelligence to analyze <laughs> these books because Moby Dick, Moby Romeo Dick, and Juliet, Moby you Dick, can read it. <laughs> but also Moby Dick starts with Queequeg in the first scene and he is definitely not white. It just seemed like a really weird thing yes. to have a computer program determine which books didn't have characters of color in them. I just don't know. Or that just because they didn't specify that it wasn't clear given the cultural and the social and the political context of those stories. Yes, exactly. I think that was another point of criticism. You know, you're, you're talking about classic literature, The Secret Garden, Romeo and Juliet, Moby Dick, and others. And why use artificial intelligence? And I think I think because the company responded pretty swiftly to concerns and criticism, this isn't a controversy that has legs like other recent ones that we've seen in the literary world. One nice thing when it comes to classics and something that Penguin Random House has been really great with is issuing a number of books by writers of color, some of them long out of print, some of them never published through its Penguin Classics line. And there have been a number of those this year, including just this month, Claude McKay's novel, Romance in Marseille, which was a novel of the Harlem Renaissance that took 87 years to finally come out, but was published as a Penguin classic. That's such a fascinating story. I love stories like that where there's some kind of ignored or overlooked long dead project that suddenly people read in a new light and it gets its day. It's a shame that it took so long, but it's great that it's out now. Well, let's hope many readers discover that book and others like it. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. Courtney Mom joins us now. Her new book is called Before and After the Book Deal, A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Publishing, Promoting, and Surviving Your First Book. Courtney, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. This is not your first book. It's your fourth book. What inspired you to write this book? I think it started when my first book came out, a novel called I'm Having So Much Fun Here Without You. A great title. Thank you. I had to fight for that because it's pretty long. But I looked around me and I realized that, you know, we're in a culture where there's a lot of books and MFA programs and summer conferences that teach you how to write and learn to revise well enough to get a book deal. But the minute you realize your dream and you, you actually do get a book deal, there's nothing. There's not a lot of resources. There's 
certainly no books about it. And the conversations that you do have are a little loaded and icky. You can't really complain. It's hard to voice your fears. So I, I wanted to put something out there for people who, who are navigating this immense privilege that nevertheless leaves you pretty raw and vulnerable. What was the scariest thing for you after you wrote your first book? You've written three novels, so after that first book. I think the scariest thing for me was that my ego got in my way. My first book was an unexpected success, so my agent said, let's try to sell the second. I came up with an idea pretty quickly, and I simply didn't give myself enough time. I I have been... You know, I would say I identify as a writer all my life. I'm pretty quick. I work as a copywriter. I meet deadlines. So I gave myself only a year to get that book in. And for me, I thought, I mean, I felt like I was on the top of the world. I had a really supportive editor, lots of great reviews, but that did not leave me enough time to to falter, to to do the writing process, to write the first draft for myself mess up, revise. A, a year only allows you to, to knock it out of the park and get it right. And I'm a very type A Virgo. I missed my deadline. This was, was like a really big deal for me. So I think the hardest thing was realizing even if your book does well or it doesn't do, it doesn't matter. You're supposed to write another one. Right, right. <laughs> I think that is very hard. People think, I got the book deal, so I'm done. And don't realize that most books there are exceptions, and it's very exciting for those people, but most books sort of don't sustain you for the rest of your life. They absolutely don't sustain you. And, you know, also the people who get, I'm not talking about the million-dollar book deals, but, you know, solid book deals, I'm $100,000, $120,000, those payments usually come in four times over two years. And if the book doesn't perform well, that's it. There are wonderful things that can happen. It can be optioned or translations can sell. But, you know, you are entering a system where you're supposed to keep putting product out. And that transition from it being a sort of secret art, a passion, to to an actual profession is another reason I wanted to write this book because it doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, I mean, even that advanced notion, I feel like people outside the book world and even to extent first-time authors, you hear something like six-figure advance. <laughs> they don't realize then when you break down even a very nice six-figure advance, let's say a $500,000 sure. advance, <laughs> you're going to break it down, as you said, into three or four payments. Now the tradition is four with Part of it coming on signing. So let's say it's over a three-year period. Let's say you write your book in a year, which again, as you point out, it's a pretty quick turnaround. You get in a $500,000 advance, let's say it's even two payments, and that's not going to happen because usually, right, it's like you have a, you you deliver 100 pages, you get a quarter, you turn in your full manuscript, you get another quarter. On publication, you get that third quarter, and then now paperback, paperback often. <laughs> often you get the fourth quarter. So, okay, we, let's, let's divide it into $125,000 over the course of three years. Not a lot of money when you consider that it's you pay your taxes, so that takes out almost half of it. You're paying the agent fifteen percent, yeah. and so what you well end maybe up- you have dependents, and I mean everyone's life is very difficult for some people. Like out where where I live, that that would go very far that amount of money. If you're living in Manhattan, you have three kids, maybe not so much. But something else I wanted to talk about in this book are the people that get. $5,000 book right, deals, right. people who get a box of books and a beer as a book deal. And I'm not making fun. This, this With micro presses, that's what you're looking at, $500 a box of books. And I really wanted to 
speak to the Tony Doors, the Roxane Gays, and also the people who are publishing with these micropresses to get a look at the the type of writer lives that we don't we don't read about in the profiles. We don't hear how these people are are actually making ends meet and why they're writing. You know, they they have to. That's some burning desire in them. But how are they how are they making a living? And I wanted to examine in this book ways to use your writing skills outside of the realm of academia as well and to recognize you have you have skills and you're not getting those big advances a lot of people most people won't but there's still a path for you right you divide the book into before the book deal and after the book deal let's talk about before what would you say are most aspiring writers sort of biggest misperceptions mm. and what information did you sort of most want to arm people with this is on my mind a lot cuz i'm starting to work privately with with writers. And what I'm finding, you know, we're in this culture where everything has to be branded and sort of social media ready. So a major mistake I'm finding with emerging writers is that they're thinking about the way their work is going to be received in the marketplace and and marketed well before they even have a solid draft. Mm -hmm. And people are getting in their way. You know, you don't even have the privilege of asking yourself how you're going to be marketed until you get the writing right. People are, are fast forwarding to the end game and not learning how to revise, especially now that you can you can pay a lot of people to help with your manuscripts, right? This can be an exceptional tool. But if you don't learn how to revise yourself and protect yourself against your your less <laughs> flattering habits, it's going to be a really, really hard industry to make it buy in because if you do have any level of success, you get thrown these assignments all the time. Write an off-the-book piece, write an op-ed, oh, could you do a blog post? And you have to learn how to generate quality content quickly. You have to know how to write. You have to learn how to write. So people are kind of, you know, either they're skipping over that or... I don't know. They're going, I can't really speak to this. I don't have an MFA, but I do think at the MFA level, perhaps you're learning to write a certain way or, you know, you're exposed to certain books. All of that's fine, but you need to learn how how to write. You really do. That's so important. It's the most important thing. It's it's what's going to get you a book deal. You can have a trendy topic, but unless you're a celebrity, the writing has to be great. The story has to be great. What's the most common question that you get asked about people before they sign their deal? I think definitely the most common question remains, how do I get an agent? And this comes back to what I've said before. The way you get an agent is to, you know, not send off your first draft that you feel really good about, but to send off the 11th, you know. Mm -hmm. And we get so much rejection in our lives at writers that normally people accept their very first offer from an agent. They're thrilled. Finally, someone said yes, right? But at the end of the day... Literary agents are the employee of writers. They take 15% of more or less everything that we make. They need to be our business partners. They need to be our creative partners. To a certain degree, we hope that they're our friends. But, you know, it's not enough that an agent just likes what you do. I think that they have to have a a view of the arc of your career, not just this book. What's the next book going to be? What's the third book going to be? And probably at this point in the game, you might want someone that works with you as a developmental editor because acquiring editors, especially at the large houses, they have no time. They're in meetings all the time. So again, you know, it's not it's not as easy as you finally get an agent and then you're off to the races. Do you think that in general that idea from agent, editor, to the publishing house of, you know, the bigger, the more prestigious, the better is 
a misperception that authors have, that it's not necessarily about getting the big name agent or the major publisher if the editor isn't the right person or if you're not going to necessarily get personalized attention from that agent. I think a misperception that a lot of people have is that everything depends on the debut. Mm -hmm. I do think in America we are outsizedly obsessed with the debut, especially if it's a young, attractive person. Ultimately, the end game should probably be that our first book does well enough that we have the privilege to publish again. I think that's a more sustainable viewpoint. And listen, I mean, hey, I hope it for everyone. But if if your first, your very first book is an, an insane success, well, you're not going to have a lot of time to, to write. You know, sometimes I'm not going to say it's a curse. Of course, it's not a curse to make money in this industry. It's a real privilege. But you'll be left with with very little time for yourself and for that private, quiet voice inside of you that just wants to sit down and write. And if you're away from that too long, for some people, it can be hard to go back to. And if you have the expectations, you've hit the bestseller list with your first book. Well, gosh, where do you go after there? You know, what if you want to pivot? God forbid you want to try another genre. Right, especially when there's that idea of that brand. Absolutely. A lot of editors and publishing houses, they, they'll tell you, well, you, your readers, you know, they won't follow you there. You have to change your name. You have to use a pen name. You can't go write a thriller if you've done a, a rom-com. All right. I want to talk about the second half of your book title, which is the after the book deal, because most people outside of publishing and first time authors think like, I've got a book deal. Like, you know, I'm done. That's it. You're done. We're done. You're not done. Um, I'm all set. Um, (laughs) That's when it starts. Yes. How do you break down the process after that? Therapy. (laughs) I'm serious. I am not making light. You need someone to talk to because unfortunately, and I think this has been revealed in the past weeks, publishing is not great with the communication there's problems there. And the agent is usually the go-between, which makes everything kind of awkward. It's hard for writers to talk to their publicists. Everyone's trying to do their best job. So there's some defensiveness there, which I understand. But I do think that the publishing industry could do better to realize that they are publishing the work of yearning, striving human beings who are feeling very raw. And so it's about measuring and understanding also the extent to which you feel comfortable being your own PR agency. There's a lot of pressure on authors right now to be their own social media managers, you know, to to be performing themselves. And this is for people who have spent, what, three years, four years, five years, all alone in some funky (laughs) room. Not the best performers, In disgusting pajamas, (laughs) talking to voices in their heads, and then they're thrown out in the road, supposed to do do pot, do all sorts of very public facing things even if you're good at it it takes energy away from our from our private creative selves and learning how visible and how public you can be versus oh i feel something inside myself i need to st- i need to get offline you have to have a fulcrum inside of you if you don't i promise you you are going to spend all of your time online refreshing just hoping that you know some email is going to come in that Oprah's chosen you for the book club and these things don't come in. So really, you'd be best served by moving on to the next project. I think that that's important to set that time aside. You could have a little chapter like Oprah's not emailing you anytime It's soon. in there. It's in, There is actually a line that says like that email. First of all, you can go to an island where there's no way to reach you and someone will reach you if that you don't need to be online to find out that that's happening. Right. If Oprah <laughs> wants to get you, she'll find a way she'll to get in touch. Yeah. The other thing... I think, again, that is surprising to people outside this industry is that when you sign your book deal, it's a very different thing if you're fiction or nonfiction. Because 
of your fiction, you've written your book most of the time. Usually, certainly for the first book, that's right. And then with nonfiction, a lot of people can sell a book on just a proposal. And I certainly have interviews in this book. I have interviews with about 175 different writers and publishing professionals. And a lot of the nonfiction writers said that they were very surprised to realize that they had to write an entire book once the proposal was accepted. And certain writers said, you know what? It's just the kind of mind I have. It took me longer to write the proposal than I think it would have taken if I'd, if I'd written the, the book itself. What's the biggest thing? This is a two-part question. What's the biggest thing people worry about once they've signed their book deal? And maybe what should they be worried about that they don't necessarily think of? The thing is, is that they worry about sales. Will the book sell? But nobody sits us down and helps us writers understand What's expected of us? How many books should we sell? We have no idea. If, you're, if you know that you're a lead title, well, you know that you have support behind you. But what does that mean? Like, literally, no one knows if, if people are walking around. And, and even the people with you know, the $1,000 book deals, they're like, maybe there's some amazing world in which I'll get the New York Times bestseller list. But they don't actually know the colossal amount of copies. I think they think it's like, oh, maybe if I sell, you know, 300 copies in a week or so, they don't know that it's 90,000 or, you know, it's whatever. So I, I tell people, you're obviously going to have a lot of anxiety if you don't even know how long the marathon is that you're running. Yes. So find out, you know, don't ask how many copies, because who at this time, like especially fiction, it's not it's not selling super great. So the number is going to be more modest than you think. Why don't you find out what your first print, your initial print run is going to be? Maybe it's a modest number, 2,000, 3,000. Then ask for support from your publisher. How do you think I can sell through that first print run? I think that that's a really manageable way for people to feel more in charge of, of their sales and you know sales-related success than to just shoot around and what, trying to sell 30,000 copies in a week, which... It's going to be hard even for household names, honestly, at this point. I think for many of our listeners, some of these phrases, you know, that, that we're using, they don't even necessarily know what they mean. So let's go back. Mm. And what, is, what do we mean by a lead title? What is that? Okay, so a lead title, regardless of the size of a publishing house, whether it's what we consider the big five, which are corporate publishing houses or, or smaller presses, independent presses like Catapult, which this book is published with, there'll be certain titles either per month or one for the entire year that the house is going to put their full support behind in terms of resources, energy, and money. In many cases, that means especially at the larger houses, that they will tour the author, that they will pay for the tour, that they'll set aside a marketing budget. Whereas with titles that are they're not sure are going, they're taking a risk on and they're not mm -hmm. sure are going to perform well, you won't see that author being toured. You know, they'll do some social media coverage. Of course, they'll hopefully try to get a little publicity, but that's not their lead horse, you know. The other thing that you mentioned is an advance. And I think this, again, is is confusing to people, the mm -hmm. way in which authors make money. Explain <laughs> what, you know, we talked about how an advance is this money you get, you know, ahead of time that is paid out according to a schedule, usually for payments now. How does that work against copies that you sell and royalties? How do writers get rich, for example? Or how do they make even a living if they have a small advance? How does that all work? 
Okay, so I mean, another mistake I think people go uh, go into in this industry is thinking that they'll make any money at all that they, they can live off of. I firmly believe that you should have another stream of income in, until you don't need to. That's that's one thing. The writers who are doing really well, number one, out the gate, their publishers believe in the book. Like I said, they have a lead title. They're probably pretty good at social media. They already have a platform. And then things happen. They get speaking engagements. Those can be very lucrative. When your book sells in foreign territories, sometimes certain territories like Germany, for a buzzy title, they might pay as much as $40,000. Sometimes they pay a lot. Listen, for most people, they're not paying a lot, $500, $1,000. Options for film, television, and sort of audio originals are away right now. But most people, and I really, this is very important to me that we remember that there's so many writers out there who are not making a living off of their writing, and they're writing anyway. I have been that person. I will be that person again, and I love those people. And most of them are teaching. Most of them are teaching but they're adjuncting. So given that you've been paid in advance mm-hmm. beforehand and you get that paid out, what does it mean to get royalties? And when do you get royalties? How does that work? So a lot of people never see royalties. You know, it depends on your advance. If you get a colossal advance, like a million dollars, what have you, they're not necessarily expecting that you're going to earn back your advance. Most writers only earn back maybe 70% of their, not even most writers, Most big deal writers are earning back 70%. A lot of publishers at the big five level, they're they're consciously overpaying either because they really want to acquire a certain author, a certain project at a certain time. They know they're paying too much. If we go down into the smaller leagues, let's say you got a $50,000 advance, more or less, I mean, there's all sorts of factors, but more or less, you need to sell through the equivalent of what $50,000 worth of copies would be. And that can be all mixed together. If you have an audio book, you have a hardcover or, you know, paperback. And once you earn back that advance... It's calling earning out. Earning out, exactly. Then you start to see the royalty payments. Sometimes you, if you have a happy surprise, you can earn out your book before the book even comes out because it, there's more pre-orders than they expected or maybe you get a big foreign sale or the audiobook sale goes for a lot. There can be really happy surprises when you're getting a smaller smaller advance. This book, as I mentioned earlier, is divided into sections with many, many subsections from the book party to the book tour to, you know, <laughs> handling your inbox to blurbing in academia and do I need to go to parties and right. <laughs> all of this great stuff. And it's, it's very fun to read, even if you've been through this or maybe especially if you've been through this. But I think my favorite section heading is called You Drive Me Crazy. Mm. The things <laughs> authors do that drive publishing professionals nuts. And so I'd be remiss. If, um, as our, our last question, if I didn't ask about this, what drives publishers insane? I think it's when authors forget that they have other authors, you know, that they have other clients, that their agent has other clients, that their book is the only thing that matters in the universe. Now, on the flip side, that's what it feels like when you're the writer, but sometimes it's hard for people to imagine what an editor's inbox actually looks like, what a publicist's inbox actually looks like, and that. All of our publishing friends can't be all things to us authors. You know, a lot of people expect their agent to be their therapist and their publicist to be their personal assistant. And these are people not getting giant salaries, doing their best. In most cases, they're doing their best. And we want 
them to respect our time, we need to respect theirs. So that section, I did want the publishing professionals to weigh in and say, listen, if you're not getting a good response from your team, the problem might be you. There's some obnoxious authors out there, and I have what I think are pretty funny anecdotes about authors behaving badly. All right. I want to end with an anecdote, but before I do, I just want to insert one figure here for people to bear in mind since we're talking about the low-paying nature of this field, which is that even at one of the big five publishers, the entry level for an editorial assistant, average salary at a big five publisher is $35,000. That is in New York City. In New York City. That's where, important. Where, like, that monthly take-home is, 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 is not enough to pay rent in all likelihood. So just to to factor it in, and, and those are the people that you're driving crazy some of the right. time. But so send them some wine if they drink from time to time. Honestly, don't forget the editorial assistants. People always forget them. So let's end with, with like, a really funny story. <laughs> oh, mine? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone. It could be a personal one or it could be one from your book. So, I mean, one of the, the things that sparked me to write this book was the very first day, the, my pub day for my very first book, I'd gotten such amazing press that I drove to a town where I knew no, no one thinking, like, oh, my God, you know, am I going to find a parking spot? Is there going to be a line out the door? How cool would that be? Courtney, mom is coming to She's town. She's coming to town. And then as I got closer to the store, I realized this book literally came out this morning. Even my closest friends don't, they haven't had time to read it. I'm not a known name. Like, who the heck's going to be at this event in this town where I don't know anyone? Well, three people. One was the Simon & Schuster sales agent. One was the bookstore owner. And one was an elderly gentleman who was asleep in the front row. Oh, no. And uh, that was a kickoff to my nationwide book tour, which led me to wonder perhaps the, the facade that we see on social media of the glamorous author life is not actually yes. what is great. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Literary Success. All right, Courtney, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Courtney Mom is a novelist and also the author of a new guidebook, Before and After the Book Deal, A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Publishing, Promoting, and Surviving Your First Book. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles, Dave Kim, and Tina Jordan. Hey, guys. Hey, Pamela. Tina, let's start with you. So I'm reading a novel called The House of Trelawney by Hannah Rothschild. And this was recommended to me by Elida Becker. Long, uh, long time dearly book departed. Review, dearly departed Elida She's Becker. She's still alive. <laughs> she is. The longtime book review editor who's just retired. And she and I shared a lot of the same or share a lot of the same taste in fiction. And this is a big, juicy, dysfunctional family saga set at an 800-year-old castle in Cornwall. I'm going to read you a short description of it. It has four miles of corridors. That's an astonishing thing. The beauty of the interiors paled next to its setting. To the north of the castle were 400 acres of medieval oak woods set in deep cushions of moss laced with streams chasing over granite boulders. Different times of the year, the glades were carpeted with flowers, crocuses, snowdrops, bluebells, wild garlic, rare orchids. I mean, you can just imagine. So the earl and his wife are still alive. The earl-to-be who's, I think, in his 40s or 50s, is losing his fortune in London. The castle is falling apart. He does have a sister from whom he's estranged who runs a very successful hedge fund and has money and who clearly is going to become involved. I'm not at that point yet. 
it's just at the point where everything is being set up for disaster, which is just how I like it. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually where I am in my book, too. Oh, (laughs) what are you? I'll jump right in. I'm reading Bad Blood Nonfiction by John Carreyrou. That's C-A-R-R-E-Y-R-O-U. He spent 20 years as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal where he broke the story of Theranos, which was the Silicon Valley startup trying to revolutionize blood testing, making it so that patients could just keep a machine in their house and prick their own fingers and do very elaborate blood tests, sort of the way diabetics do already for glucose testing, except that Theranos was going to do it for a lot more than just glucose. You you know, test for various proteins and see how drugs were affecting their diseases, catch diseases very early in, in the game. It's a very ambitious startup run by a very young Stanford dropout. In fact, she dropped out of Stanford early in her sophomore year in order to start this company. Very smart, talented, ambitious, charismatic, and ruthless and reckless named Elizabeth Holmes, who in pursuit of this goal was touted as and saw herself as kind of the next Steve Jobs, only in biotech. And she drove her employees really hard, I mean, kind of into the ground. There was tremendous turnover at this company. And as much as her idea had promise and and maybe, you know, was feasible, she just at every step of the way got out too early. Mm -hmm. Um, She raised money too early. She went on sales calls too early when nothing was quite working yet. And so everything is is just set up for a disaster. It's clear that she's over-touting the, the revenues and the potential for revenues. And anytime that anybody raises this stuff as you need to slow down, there's a red flag, she just cans them or forces them off the board. Or, you know, it's it's you're at this feeling where you think this could really have been something. It's not like she set out to be a con artist. She set out really with real visions and just mismanaged everything so badly and wouldn't take advice and wouldn't listen to anybody, and it ended up being a huge disaster. I know that the second part of this book will be Carrie Rue talking about it as a journalist, how he came across the story and uncovered it, and how Theranos tried to stop him from reporting on it. I'm not there yet, and I'm, I'm still at the everything-is-going-wrong phase. Okay, I have two questions. Yeah. One, is it true that she didn't start out as a total con artist? Because for some reason I got the impression sort of reading <laughs> you know, about it that this was sort of a real bad player from very early on. It's hard to separate her ambition and her mismanagement. I, I think it is true that she thought this technology was possible. She had this vision for it. She recognized the market for it. And again, she just rushed. I may learn more from the book, or you may need to ask Carrie Rue himself, but I believe that she thought she could make this happen. Mm-hmm. She, she was not just out to con people. And it was as things started falling apart, she just tried to hide that and paper over it all. And it, it became kind of a con game, but it didn't start out as like a sales pyramid type scheme. Okay. And the other question I have is just as a potential reader, because I have a copy of this book and everybody loves it and everyone was reading it. <laughs> and I think it's newly out in paperback. And so it's on my shelf. And And when I thought about, you know, potentially picking it up, I I had that feeling of like, oh, but is this all over now? And it is over, right? But Yeah, the the story of Theranos is over, except in court. I I think that 
Yeah, she's um, she's still facing charges, and you know we'll need to see what happens legally. And there's an afterword to this book that that will go into some of that. But just as a read, so so forget reading it as journalism. Then, if your point is, well, the story has already happened. It's a really riveting read. It's vivid. It's fast paced, and it's one of these stories because it brings together science and technology and Silicon Valley. It's a story of a startup. It's entrepreneurialism. So it it feels like it speaks to a lot of larger things going on in the culture. And again, you feel like her vision for the company, her original vision for the company, if somebody is more careful and spends the time to get it right, you know, we're maybe not that far away from these microfluid blood tests that mm-hmm. she envisioned. There are some technical issues to be resolved, but it feels very relevant still, even though Theranos itself has blown up already. And Carrie Rue just also has a really great eye for the journalistic detail. Like before it was called Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes called the company Real-Time Cures. But because of a typo, a lot of the early paychecks went out as real-time curses. And later on, she gave an interview to a um, Silicon Valley newsletter, a newspaper that touted them as kind of the the hottest startup in Silicon Valley. And the name of that newsletter was Red Herring. You know, he's a great storyteller. Dave, what are you reading? So I've got two books to talk about because I'm greedy. But (laughs) the first is The Black Cathedral by Marcial Gala and really wonderfully translated by Anna Kushner from the Spanish. Uh, Gala is a Cuban novelist, a poet, an architect, and and he's never been translated before into English, and this is a great way to start. This novel has you know multiple characters, multiple narrators, multiple storylines. It's set mostly in the southern Cuban city of Cienfuegos. I'll just talk about the, the two main narrative threads. So one is uh, we follow the Stuarts, and this is a super religious family. The father is a you know very religious pastor who's trying to build this huge cathedral in Cienfuegos, trying to turn the city into a kind of Cuban Jerusalem. But of course, his children are very troubled. His two sons kind of get sucked into the hard knock life around them. His daughter is an artist who's you know making her way out and doesn't want anything to do with the city. And then we follow a hustler named Gringo who's in love with this daughter and partly because of thwarted love and partly because of, you know, just crippling poverty, he becomes this murderous criminal. And just summing this book up, I think would kind of makes it sound over the top. There are ghosts in it. There's cannibalism, just an unflinching look at violence. It's, you know, there are characters named Nacho Fat Lips and Guts. <laughs> um, and, and, and But Gala really pulls it off. His voice is just really a pleasure to read. The translation really feels like it was written this way and not, you know, and not translated. You know, readers of Juno Diaz are going to like this book. They recognize that, you know, brilliantly profane, very funny voice. As soon as you said Nacho Fat Lips, I thought of him. Exactly. <laughs> but I think there are also these nice aphoristic moments that let you know you're in the hands of a writer who's wise and, like, knows a lot about humanity and has some great astute observations to make about it. It's just that exuberant energy but contained in a book that's really about human weaknesses and hubris and vulnerabilities that made me like this so much. Your other book's also a little bit about human weakness. Exactly, <laughs> which I'm frantically reading as all hell is about to break loose. The, the next book is The Birth Partner by Penny Simkin with Katie Ross, and I am rereading this 
my partner and I are expecting our second child pretty much any minute, so I may have <laughs> dash out, dash out, <laughs> studio. <laughs> yeah, cover the birth live on the podcast, New York Times podcast. Um, no, uh, the birth partner was written in 1989. Now it's in its fifth edition, uh, and it's basically a 400-page user manual for. <laughs> For dads, partners, doulas, and other labor companions for the frantic hours and sometimes days of labor and delivery. Th- this book really filled a void for me when I was looking for books about you know, books for expecting dads because the market is just really – it just appeals to the worst male stereotypes. I think everything has – the word dude in the title. <laughs> no, that's a recent development maybe. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't looking at, at the dad books. There's there books like, dude, you're going to have a baby and diaper dude. And <laughs> I think there's one that's actually called The Reluctant Father. <laughs> I just was looking for a nicely written textbook, basically, that tells you what's going to happen and what you need to do. And this book really does it. It's very comprehensive. It's sort of like, and that's almost like it's also, it's flaw. I mean, it, it really covers all the bases of, you know, every possible scenario. It's like how to make an omelet 17 different ways. It's like here's during a hurricane. Here's what happens when your partner is punching you in the face and saying, <laughs> why did you do this to me? And But I think the best parts are the stories she tells of other couples and just these anecdotes that that let you know, you know, the weird rituals that people come up with during this very stressful time. You know, one woman really needed to have her back scratched in a particular way. You know, another couple was really into hairbrushing during the labor. Another woman was fixated on the hole in her husband's shirt and it became this kind of Dumbo feather. And, you know, when he turned away, it like totally ruined everything. So I, I really like those. Is there a lot about ice chips in there? I just remember ice chips. There, yeah, there's a good amount of, of about ice chips. And, you know, I may be confusing that with my, my labor class that I took years ago. <laughs> you know, I it, it sounds like you're reading the right book before your second baby's birth. But I remember before my thirds, I read the wrong book for me, which was Ina May's Guide to Childbirth, which I read in part because I was doing – so I was researching stories that I was reporting at the time about birth and birth choice and the growing rate of cesarean sections. And Ina May's Guide to Childbirth is like, you know, the most sort of, you know – what's the word? Artisanal? It's artisanal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's for people who like, you know, give birth in like a field with like, you know, that's surrounded by, you know, spiritual attendants. And I was in a hospital like extremely heavily, you know, drugged out with an epidural. But I had read that book right before. And so I had this vision of like that I was just going to wait until the baby was ready. And uh, the doctor was like, you know, it's really time to start pushing. And I was like, nope. The baby will send me a signal. And finally, you know, after hours of my delaying, he was like, you know, you actually can't feel anything. You were on so many drugs. Like, that baby really is ready. And like, so sometimes you have to ignore the books, I guess. I, you know, the, this, there was nothing in the book that I, that I put to use during our first child, which, you know, uh, he was almost born in the cab right over to the hospital. And we basically just had to go up. And I'm like, you know, taking the birth ball out and the yoga mat. And the nurses are like, you need to get in the hospital now this baby's coming out (laughs) in in minutes and uh so so none of you know i'm hoping this time we can do do some back ball yeah back scratching (laughs) slow dancing Uh, (laughs) 
as if. Pamela, what are you reading? Well, like Dave, I'm going to talk about two books, and these are both books that I read. Again, I have to confess, I'm still talking about the books I read during my now very long ago vacation, but I just want to catch up with all of them. So two really different books. One was a YA novel by the writer Melissa Albert, who's first book I raved about on the podcast. It was called The Night Country, and it was a fantasy novel that was published by Flatiron, which doesn't publish a lot of, of children's books or YA. And you kind of it kind of felt that way in that it was not a typical YA book where everything that a character does that's like bad, you know, that you wouldn't want your teenager doing, like drinking or smoking or whatever, wasn't instantly condemned in some sort of plot, you know, twist or, you know, it wasn't sort of shown to be like by the way, teenage reader, you know, you should not do this, which made it feel kind of revolutionary. And it was just a really great fantasy novel about a girl whose grandmother was a, a famous reclusive writer whose book disappeared. And the book was called, I think, Tales from the Hinterland. And in short order, it turns out that this hinterland, of course, actually exists. And the granddaughter, the protagonist in the book, ends up going to the hinterland. So it starts off in New York City, and then you travel to this other world, and many things happen there. And it was just really well done and felt original and was had fairy tales at its basis. And then the second book that I read while I was away is called The Night Country, which came out last fall. And as with so many, you know, second books, and I think it's probably going to be a trilogy, it's like a little bit of a letdown. It felt like once she had gotten through that initial setup, she wasn't sure quite where to go. And in this world, something happens that I think often happens in those fantasy worlds where or in science fiction movies, like, you know, an alien, you know, they go to the planet and then the aliens come to you, you know, that kind of thing in the next. So this was the creatures from the hinterland sort of coming to New York City, which I guess is, you know, kind of the next obvious step. But it just didn't come together in in quite the same way. So I, I, I am holding out hopes. I think do, do you think that's really, a problem just with a middle book of a trilogy in general? It's such an in-between? You know, often. And I think that's often – I don't know about you all, but I don't often get to the end of trilogies, <laughs> yeah. do you? I, I mean, don't either. You know, like one of the trilogy that I really loved, Justin Cronin's trilogy, which started with The Passage, and I did read The Twelve. I still haven't read the third one. And that was another problem with this book which is that it's very hard for me to go back to the Cronin now because it's been, I think, probably five years since I read the second one. I have no idea what you happened need a in it. previously in Justin Cronin. Exactly, <laughs> I do. And I should have done the same thing with the night country. I went to this island. I didn't bring a copy of the Hazelwood with me. So I felt I felt like I spent a good portion of the book being like, wait, what happened? <laughs> like, who is this person? So I was reading at a disadvantage. And the other book that I read while I was away is Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, which of course is a really excellent title. The subtitle is Resisting the Attention Economy, which also I feel is, is very good and I am on board. And it's an interesting book. She was a guest on the podcast when this book came out last spring. And one of the interesting things that happened at the end of the year is that it made President Barack Obama's list of favorite books of the year, and that catapulted it onto the bestseller list. Um, Months after it had come out. Right, for the first time. So the book came out in April, but it didn't make our list until December. And I just, that happens very rarely now, you know, for something to surface in the list so long after publication. There's so much quick turn on the bestseller list for a whole number of reasons. And that was just such a happy 
happy thing, too, because it's from a small publisher, Melville House. And, and Jenny O'Dell is a really great writer, but she's not primarily a writer. She's a she's a visual artist, and she just has a very interesting mind. And there's a lot to think about in this book. It, it's a little bit of an odd structure. She does um, a few different things in the book. And it's not a how-to book by any stretch of the imagination. The other thing I will say is when she came on the podcast, regular listeners might remember this, mostly what we talked about was her, what I was really fascinated with at the time, which was her residency that she had done at a garbage dump in the Bay Area, which is like there is an artist's and writer's residency. And I just was like, what did you do there? You know, it was interesting to me uh, how she approached that that project, you know, and I left thinking like, Maybe I should have a residency at a garbage dump. That sounds kind of interesting. I don't know if I could handle the smell. And so there's a lot in here, but she tells a story that I'd actually read about before but had forgotten about, and I want to retell it because it's such an interesting one. There was a this situation where there was this worker in an office in 2008. At the accounting firm Deloitte, there was a new person on staff and everyone in the office was kind of troubled by it. And so she, Jenny O'Dell, starts off with a a memo written at the time. It was like subject, marketing, trainee, importance, high. And the memo starts – As I already mentioned to Z, there has been a person sitting in the tax library space and staring out of the window with a glazed look in her eyes. Female, very short hair. She said when asked that she's a trainee in marketing. She sat in front of an empty desk from 10.30 a.m., went for lunch, dot, dot, dot. So Jenny O'Dell goes on to say, in the midst of a bustling work environment, she didn't seem to be doing anything except sitting at an empty desk and staring into space. Whenever someone asked what she was doing, she would reply that she was doing thought work or working on her thesis. (laughs) Then there was the day she spent riding the elevators up and down repeatedly. When a coworker saw this and asked if she was thinking again, she replied, it helps me to see things from a different perspective. The employees became uneasy. Urgent inter-office emails were sent. So it turns out that this was a Finnish artist who was working on an art project. Um, but, you know, so it's like this real-life kind of Bartleby situation. And this is part of a chapter called Anatomy of a Refusal. And and Odell takes it to this, you know, interesting place where, you know, she just – in talking about attention, talking about like the way in which we pay attention to things is not just about what we attend to but also what we sort of shut out and what we refuse to let into our consciousness. So it's definitely good to read while on vacation on a, on a desert island but I think also probably a really interesting thing to read like if you're working in a bustling work office on a daily basis. So I would recommend Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Let's run down the list of what we read again starting with you, Tina. Well, I've just started The House of Trelawney by Hannah Rothschild. I'm reading Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. I'm reading The Black Cathedral by Marcial Gala and The Birth Partner by Penny Simpkin. And I read How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell and The Night Country by Melissa Albert. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.